Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to wish everyone a quick happy holidays. Today's episode is insane. I knew I had to cover this case the minute I first heard about it a few years back. But listen, when I started researching and reading on this case, I basically became sick to my stomach on more than one occasion. And then to learn that there are more of these types of psychos out there is terrifying. The serial killer I'm covering today is stealthy. This serial killer is smart. But just like BTK, he underestimated the power of technology. The same way BTK got caught up because of a floppy disk, Today's serial killer got caught up because of a, well, you'll have to listen to find out. Join me today as I tell you the terrifying tale of Israel Keys, an army veteran who shared his plan to kidnap and kill while he was on active duty. Now, let's dig in. Samantha Tesla Koenig was born on August 30th, 1993 to her mother Darlene and father James. In 2012, Samantha was an 18-year-old girl trying to get by in the city of Anchorage, Alaska. Samantha lived with her father, James, and her boyfriend, Dwayne. Samantha was a senior at Anchorage West High School. She loved fishing with her dad, playing video games with her boyfriend, and hanging out with her friends. She was a typical teenager. She occasionally cut class and had dabbled with drugs, but nothing crazy. As for her future, Samantha had a soft spot for animals. Her future goal was to work with animals, although she was also thinking about enlisting in the Navy but she still had time to think about it. Samantha was a worker bee. She had worked at Subway and House of Harley, but earlier in the year, 2012, she had started a new job as a barista at Coffee Grounds on Tadora Road. This coffee shop wasn't like a regular building like you might find with a Starbucks or a Dunkin' Donuts. No, it was a small coffee kiosk located in the parking lot of a shopping plaza, kind of like a coffee truck. And it was here at the Coffee Grounds one cold winter night that Samantha Koenig was ever seen alive. Samantha was reported missing on Thursday, February 2nd, 2012 by the first barista to arrive at work that day. That barista got in that morning and felt that something was wrong, something was off. Sam was good at closing up the shop, but on this particular day, things were out of place and the money was gone. It was roughly $200, but it was, there was nothing there. When this barista called in the missing persons report, they checked to see if anyone had pressed the panic button the night prior because the kiosk, the coffee kiosk, well, it was outfitted with a panic button, but it hadn't been pressed. And then when they looked into text messages that Samantha sent the night prior, well, she had been fighting with her boyfriend. Samantha worked the closing shift on February 1st, and that night she had called her dad and asked him to bring her some dinner. Anyway, the case was assigned to a detective working her first day in homicide. She was a veteran cop, but she worked narcotics. As everyone learned more about Samantha's disappearance, people began to think that maybe she just ran away. She stole the money, $200, and just left. But she'd only be gone for a day or two. At least that's what people hoped. The night that Samantha disappeared, it was close to 30 degrees Fahrenheit. The police were so unimpressed with this missing persons case that they didn't rope off the coffee shop or anything. They never shut it down to inspect the scene. Just business as usual for all the coffeegoers that morning. Sam's dad, James, was now very concerned. He showed up to Sam's work that day, the day that she was reported missing, to see if maybe she would show up for her next shift, which was supposed to be from 1 to 8 p.m. As the hours ticked by, Sam was a no-show. By 8 p.m. that night, though, police had pulled the surveillance video from inside the coffee kiosk, and what they saw was grainy but concerning. Just 24 hours earlier, before 8 p.m. on February 1st, and 8 p.m. is closing time, on the video, you can see Sam alone in the kiosk. Then she greets a customer, they chat briefly, and Sam gets to work on their order. Then, two minutes later, Sam stops what she's doing. She's attentive now. She turns off the lights and puts her hands up. 
as if she's being stuck up. The customer isn't visible on the video, but as police look closely at the window where the customer is standing at, all they see is the side of a gun barrel pointed directly at Sam. She drops to her knees. While the video has no sound, it is clear that she is following instructions. She is then instructed to get the money from the cash register and give it to the person who's holding the gun. She then drops to her knees again as the very visibly tall person leans in and ties Samantha's hands behind her back. Then the person, built like a man, leaps through the window and lands right next to Sam. The man looks around, closes the kiosk window to keep people from the outside looking in. The man is wearing all black. The video shows he's wearing black pants, a black hoodie. Now the hoodie says something on the back, but the video is too grainy to make it out. The man looks to be telling Sam something. He gets down near her, then he pulls her up, Then they leave the kiosk and walk into the snow until they're no longer visible. When detectives look back into this video, it had been a total of 17 minutes from when the man arrived at the window to when he left the kiosk with Sam. Now, by this point, the FBI, who is not involved because it's just a state case right now, they see this video and they offer the locals help. But this case will turn out to be very territorial about who takes the case and who does what and blah, blah, blah. But I'm not going to get into that too much. In all honesty, it had been 24 hours since anyone had seen Samantha and the police department decided they weren't even going to make Samantha's disappearance public. Nope, even after seeing this video, they wondered if this person in the video was just Samantha's accomplice, you know, to steal the money. The locals continued to believe that with the 17 minutes that had elapsed, Sam was probably not kidnapped at all and that she'd soon be back. Also, apparently, stranger abductions are so rare that the department felt like releasing the video wouldn't be helpful at all. This quietness would soon change. When Samantha's father realized enough is enough, this is my daughter we're talking about here, my only daughter, by the way. And with that, after feeling like he had waited far too long, Samantha's father, James, took to Facebook. As investigators were looking into Samantha's disappearance, they looked at the two likely culprits. If something terrible did happen to Sam, they believed it was either her boyfriend, Dwayne, or her father, James. So let's discuss Samantha's boyfriend a little bit. His name was Dwayne, and although to me, at least, it seems odd because of their age, Dwayne had moved in with Sam and her father. Dwayne had been living with Sam and James for roughly eight months. On the night that Sam went missing, she had called her dad and asked him to bring her dinner. But for unknown reasons, James didn't bring her dinner. And that was a decision he would ultimately regret. James, though, wasn't going to take any chances. He immediately printed out flyers with his daughter's face plastered all over them. He stood by the coffee kiosk and handed them out, asking everyone, have you seen my daughter? James and his missing persons posters were so sympathetic that volunteers came out in droves to help give out flyers in hopes of finding Samantha. Everyone tried to call Sam's phone, but no one more than her dad. And the phone would ring and ring and ring and then go to voicemail. At some point, it just started to go straight to voicemail. James assumed the battery was dead. James was so eager to find his daughter that he set up a tip line desk right next to the coffee shop. I mean, this man would stop at nothing to find his daughter. Dwayne moved in with Sam and her dad in mid-2011. Both Sam and Dwayne worked, and at the moment, they were sharing a truck to get to and from work. So they would take turns dropping and picking each other up. Earlier in the day that Sam went missing, Dwayne and Sam had began to argue over text message. Well, it was more like Sam was arguing with Dwayne because she thought he was cheating on her, and she called him out on the BS. The last text exchange was as follows. Samantha said, quote, F you, asshole. I know what you did. I am going to spend a couple of days with friends. Need time to think, plan, acting weird. Let my dad know, end quote. Even though they had been fighting that day, Dwayne still did what he was supposed to do. A little after closing time, roughly around 8.30 p.m., he swung by the coffee grounds to pick up Sam. But when he arrived, everything was dark and Sam wasn't there. He figured she was just mad at him about earlier and maybe she got a ride from a friend. So he went home. When he got home and Sam wasn't there, again, Dwayne didn't think anything of it because he figured Sam went to stay with a friend to cool down. In his interview with investigators, Dwayne did mention that when he went by the coffee shop, he saw some napkins on the floor inside the kiosk and like a random towel on the counter. Yeah, 
He did find it odd because Sam was super clean and organized and she hadn't done that before. But in all honesty, it wasn't alarming to him. When Dwayne was questioned within hours of Sam's disappearance, he did remember something odd that happened in the middle of the night. He told investigators that he went home and couldn't sleep, waiting slash hoping that Sam would walk through the front door. But that didn't happen. Instead, sometime between 2 and 3 a.m., as he was inside the home, he said that he felt the sudden urge to open the front door. He did, and when he looked outside, he spotted a man ruffling through his and Samantha's car. What? Okay, so what did you do, they thought. Mind you, authorities are listening to Dwayne, and they are suspect of this little punk. They feel like he did something to hurt Samantha, and now he's trying to cover it up with some made-up story of some thief in the middle of the night. Anyway, Dwayne continues his story. He says that the man was wearing a mask. And then when the masked man saw Dwayne, they both just froze for a second. Then Dwayne immediately turned around, went inside, closed the door and told James. It's unclear what James did. But after waiting an hour, Dwayne went back outside. The masked man was now gone. Dwayne ran to the truck to see what, if anything, was missing. And that's when he realized that Sam's driver's license was gone. Dwayne then went inside and went to sleep until 9.30 in the morning. I know, I know. It seems super insane, but cut the kid some slack. I'll ruin things for you up front and tell you he's not the perpetrator. But if they would have never found Sam, I am sure there would be a cloud of doubt over this poor kid's head for the rest of his life. But he's innocent. Regardless, cops are suspect of both Dwayne and James, and they send cops over to the house and when they knock, they're surprised. As James opens the door to the investigators, he squeezes through the door to get outside to chat with the cops, almost as if he doesn't want the cops to see what's inside the house. When James and Dwayne switch, they do the whole discreet thing again. Eventually, the cops feel something is off, so they put a tail on the dad. Side note, they eventually get a search warrant for the house, and they learn that James has a grow operation in his house, and it's likely not for personal use, which explains why he was being super sketch. Anyway, by Saturday morning, on the heels of public criticism due to James making his daughter's disappearance known, the Anchorage PD released a part of the surveillance video with the man who appears to have taken Samantha. The Anchorage PD was now asking the public for help in identifying this man, a person of interest. Not sure if they had actually used that term, but I'm using it here. By now, everyone is aware that a girl went missing after working a night shift alone in the coffee shop. I imagine that teens are now terrified. So, of course, many places, including the coffee kiosks, they start changing up their protocol and they put another person on the schedule for all the night shifts. A week after the police released the surveillance video, a candlelight vigil is held in honor of Samantha. Cops are there in full force at the vigil, of course, because perpetrators are weird and they like to attend these things. So cops had their eyes peeled. By the time of the vigil, the national media was getting interested in Samantha's disappearance. Investigators had already ruled that Samantha had not left the state by airplane or via passport or cruise or ship. Her cell phone went dark after her disappearance. Her card had been used once after she vanished, but no money was taken because she had less than $5 in the account. Meanwhile, the nation is looking for Samantha. And her dad, who started a Find Samantha fund of sorts, had already raised over $50,000. The case seemed to be going stale until the investigators finally realized that they should be looking to technology to get more answers. Specifically, they were like, wait a minute, let's get the video surveillance from the Home Depot across the street from the coffee grounds to see if maybe we can capture Samantha's disappearance. And once they pull the Home Depot video, they would be kicking themselves in the butt for not requesting it sooner. In this video, they forwarded to the time right before Samantha was talking to the customer, the guy person who ultimately probably abducted her. In the video at 7.45 p.m., a white truck pulls into the parking lot. The truck was parked for roughly 10 minutes, and then a tall person exited and walked out of view towards the coffee shop. 20-ish or so minutes later, the person reappears this time right next to Samantha and he has his arm around her. While they walk towards the white truck, which authorities thought was a Chevrolet, other people walk by the man and Samantha, but it must have appeared like a normal interaction. 
Then, after a few seconds, Samantha breaks away and starts running. Her hands were clearly tied with something and Samantha was frantic. The man then knocks her to the ground and lifts her up as they quickly walk to the truck. The man must have whispered something in Samantha's ear to cause her to obey. Then they got into the vehicle and he drove away. Now, almost three weeks since Samantha's abduction, it was clear that Samantha did not voluntarily walk away with this guy and she was not in on this abduction. And the investigators, they're, they're feeling like, oh my gosh, we're behind in our investigation. What now? Well, on February 24th, three weeks after Samantha was reported missing, Samantha sent Dwayne a text message, a whole ass text message. The text read, quote, Connor Park, sign under pick of Albert, ain't she purdy, end quote. What? Dwayne immediately contacted authorities and the Anchorage PD rushed to Connor's Bog Park. They rushed to a bulletin used to give notice of events and lost dog flyers. And there it was, a Ziploc bag. They opened the Ziploc bag and it's a ransom note and a picture. It's a picture of Sam. Her hair is braided. She's wearing makeup. Her eyes are open. Her mouth has duct tape. She looks like a zombie kind of. And to the right of the picture is a newspaper dated February 13th, 2012. And there is clearly like a person's hand holding up the newspaper and it's not Sam's hand. The ransom note read, quote, I may not use the card much in Alaska due to a small pop, but as I will be leaving soon, I will be using it all over. She did almost get away twice, once on Tador and once in the desert. Must be losing my touch, end quote. The captor was demanding $30,000 deposited into Dwayne and Sam's account. Finally, the captor said in the note, if he got the money, he would release Sam in six months. And with that, this case went from a state case to a federal case due to it officially being a kidnapping. The FBI was now in charge and their first order of business was to get this note and picture analyzed. Maybe they could lift a print, run it in some database, and see if they could get a hit. Also, now that they knew the perpetrator had one of Samantha's debit cards, they would be monitoring it like a hawk. The FBI was also interested in learning if Samantha was alive or dead in the pic. I mean, her eyes were wide open, but that doesn't mean anything, right? So the FBI brings in their best experts, experts upon experts. And when they look at this picture of Sam, they are all split. They say she's alive. Some say she's dead, which really none of this is helpful, but they had to keep searching. Their next step was to get money put into that account to see if they could lure their captor to retrieve it from the ATM. So what does the FBI do? They went to James to see if he could put some of that money he had raised to find Sam into this account as requested by the captor. James said no. The police were shocked. Is he serious right now? Your daughter is missing. You no kidding raised over $60,000 at this point for a fund called Help Me Find Sam. And now you don't want to use the money for that? Correct. James said no. He thought it might be some scam and he didn't just want to lose his money. The FBI was like, we get it, dad. But what if this is real? Eventually, James loosened up. It took him a whopping five days, but he did loosen up. So on February 29th, yeah, it was a leap year. James agreed to put $5,000 into the account. He deposited the money and no kidding, four hours later, someone used the stolen ATM card. Police were shocked. How did the perpetrator know that James deposited the money? Was James in on it? I mean, police couldn't rule him out yet and this was super suspicious. Anyway, the perpetrator couldn't get money out because he requested to take out $600 and there was a $500 daily limit. But this didn't stop the perpetrator because two hours later, the perp got smart and they were able to withdraw $500, this time from the Denali Federal Credit Union, which was not far from the first bank attempt. And from that point forward, the perp got smart. He realized that if $500 was the max withdrawal for each day, he'd have to head to an ATM right before midnight to withdraw before the clock struck 12. And then he'd be able to withdraw again after the clock struck midnight. Lucky for the investigators, some of the ATMs that this man used had properly functioning surveillance, so they were able to pull those. What authorities failed to do, however, as pointed out by author Maureen Callahan, who wrote my primary source for this story, American Predator, 
She says that authorities failed to request and pull surveillance from nearby stores, like stores that were near the ATMs. Which, listen, one of my favorite shows on TV is See No Evil, where they actually walk through how they catch suspects using surveillance video. And you would think, I mean, I know this was in 2012, but you would think that they would know better. Anyway, I digress. Once they got the images from the ATM analyzed, they weren't that helpful, although they were able to determine the person was built like a man with an athletic body. The person was unidentifiable because he was wearing a mask, gloves, dark pants, shoes that were light in color. It was not enough evidence to really know who the person was, but they did notice that the person was relatively tall. And then a few weeks later, Sam and Dwayne's ATM card was used again. This time it was used in Wilcox, Arizona. Arizona? What? The card had been used on March 7th to withdraw $400. Video surveillance showed it was probably the same guy as before. Hoodie, sunglasses, face mask. And all of a sudden, as authorities are looking at this, they get another alert, New Mexico. This time, the perp couldn't withdraw the money because he had met his daily limit. I guess the perp didn't realize there was a time zone difference. As authorities began to realize that the perp was heading east, they sent a bolo be on the lookout to authorities in Los Angeles, San Diego, Phoenix, Albuquerque, and El Paso, Texas. Then there was another ping, a balance inquiry, followed by an $80 withdrawal. Throughout the times that the perp was going from ATM to ATM, including Humble and Shepherd, Texas, investigators were analyzing the still images of the perp. But not just that. They were also analyzing other parts of the image, like the type of vehicle the perp was driving. Through these images, they determined that the man was driving a white Ford Focus. A cop near one of the ATM locations reported seeing a white Ford Focus around the time one of the ATM pulls occurred. And this vehicle description would prove to be the most helpful evidence to finding the perpetrator. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. It was now 6.30 a.m. when Texas Ranger Steve Rayburn received the bolo. It read in part, kidnapping suspect, victim, Samantha Koenig. It is believed suspect is driving a light-colored car traveling towards El Paso. A few hours later, Steve was notified he was the lead ranger on the bolo. Well, Steve was one of those cops who really took his job seriously. So now he looked at the case, wrote up a bulletin to send to the other rangers, and this time he added a few details. He told everyone to be on the lookout for suspect or kidnapping victim and to be aware that the suspect would be in possession of Samantha's boyfriend's ATM card. He sent the bulletin to agencies in Texas, Louisiana, and he even included Arkansas for good measure. Stephen then went over to Highway Patrol and he gave them a heads up too. 
Corporal Brian Henry, who had been with the force for 20 years, was all ears. And delivering that bulletin to Henry would be the thing to finally get anyone answers about what happened to Samantha Koenig. At 11 p.m., Henry called Rayburn and he was like, listen, I was driving around hotel parking lots looking for this white Ford Focus and I came across one parked at the Quality Inn in front of room 115. The car was interesting because it had a barcode on the back window, clearly a rental car. There were kids clothes in the back. It was interesting because I asked the hotel if this car was registered to anybody at the hotel and it wasn't. Rayburn decides to call in one of his undercover agent buddies, a guy named Mickey Hadnot. And Mickey Hadnot heads over to the Quality Inn and observes the car. He calls Rayburn and says, hey, I just saw a man exit room 215 and enter this white rental vehicle. At that point, Rayburn asked Henry, the highway patrolman, to set up on the highway and see if this car does anything illegal. And if it does, pull it over. Henry was all for it. He quickly followed this vehicle. And as soon as it went two miles over the speed limit, Henry hit the lights. The car pulled over nicely. Henry asked the driver where he was from. And the man said, Alaska. He said he was in town for his sister's wedding, which was in Wells, Texas, which was about 15 minutes away. Henry asked the man to exit the car and the man did. The man gave Henry his license and his name was Israel Keys. The man was clearly carrying a knife in his front pocket. So Henry asked him to remove the knife and the man complied. At this point, the driver was getting a little bit annoyed. So Keys asked, what's this stop about? Henry said, well, listen, dude, uh, we're looking into a kidnapping. From outside, Henry was looking into the vehicle, and that's when he could see a roll of cash wrapped with a rubber band, which had red dye on it, appearing to be from a bank robbery. On the passenger lay maps with highlighting on it. So Keyes commented that he was in the hotel with his two brothers from Maine who were also in town for the sister's wedding. At this point, Keyes begins to like sweat profusely, and he just keeps talking. He said he flew in from Texas a week earlier, but because it was a last minute flight, he had to fly from Alaska to Vegas, and that's where he rented a vehicle. He said he came into town with his 10-year-old daughter. An FBI agent who had been with Rayburn earlier that day was now on scene with Rayburn, and this FBI agent, whose name is Deb Ganaway, well, she had questions. So she starts asking this Keys guy more and more about his travels. She's like, so where did you stop on your way from the airport to your, your sister's wedding? And he talks about the Grand Canyon. He says he stopped for gas. And she's like, OK, so how did you pay for the gas? And he's like, I don't know. I paid in cash. His responses, though, you know, they just appeared to be indecisive. Rayburn then asked Keys if they could search his wallet, at which point Keys became defiant, stating, you guys can't search anything. Am I under arrest? Not yet, buddy. Not yet. Eventually, after conferring with investigators in Alaska, Texas authorities searched Keys and they found what they were looking for. In his wallet, he had Dwayne's stolen ATM card and Samantha Koenig's driver's license. Bingo, they got him. But this was just the beginning. Where was Samantha and what had he done with her? In addition to the identification tying this Israel Keys fellow directly to Samantha, they also found pornographic DVDs, a ski mask, a headlamp, a handgun, binoculars, and a cell phone with its battery and SIM card removed. This cell phone would later be revealed to belong to Samantha Koenig. They found other things in his car, but I just wanted to highlight the ones that appeared to connect him directly to Samantha's case. Israel Keys was taken into custody in Texas to await extradition to Alaska. Meanwhile, back in Alaska, authorities went straight to Keyes' house to turn it upside down in search of Samantha. Keyes lived at 2456 Spur Lane in Anchorage. The house was located on a cul-de-sac. It had two sheds in the rear. As reported by author Maureen Callahan, Keyes' house was located in a well-to-do community where lawyers, nurses, and even judges lived. When they checked to see if Keyes owned the house, they learned that he did not own it but it belonged to his girlfriend, Kimberly A. Kimberly also owned a vehicle similar to the one seen in Alaska ATM videos, the ones in the search for Samantha. As investigators got closer to the house, they saw it, the white Chevrolet truck, similar to the one they saw in the surveillance video at the Home Depot. The car with Samantha was last seen alive. The truck had the words Keys Construction written on the side, 
It was a little different, though, in that it now had a wooden rack on the back, but that's something that could easily be removed. As authorities searched the home and the sheds in the back, they ripped it apart looking for Samantha, but they came up empty. They lifted every rug, lifted every blanket, and checked every nook and cranny where you could possibly keep a person. And nothing, no Samantha. But what they did find was a bit disturbing. They found loads of pornography, straight porn, gay porn, transgender porn, bondage porn. They also found books upon books about serial killers. Authorities knew that they'd have to get keys to talk if they were ever going to bring Samantha home. Before they went that route, though, they spoke to Kimberly, Keys' girlfriend, and she was so confused. They were like, listen, ma'am, your boyfriend is believed to be involved in the kidnapping of a girl on February 1st. And Kimberly was like, what? A kidnapping? What are you talking about? February 1st? We all went on a cruise in February and spent time in the lower 48. You guys probably have the wrong guy. In fact, Keys left for the airport at 5 a.m. on February 2nd, and he was home with me the entire time. Investigators weren't sure if Kimberly was being serious or if she was maybe an accomplice. So they'd have to speak to Keyes. When Keyes was still under arrest in Texas, Rayburn and an FBI agent by the name of Ganaway that I talked about earlier, they interviewed Keyes. He was quiet, didn't want anything to eat. They told him they found Samantha's ID in his wallet. Keyes quickly told them he didn't want to talk, yet he never requested an attorney. Investigators continued, listen, man, we saw surveillance of your truck at the coffee grounds taking Samantha. Keys quickly snapped back. If they had that, they would have already spoken to me. It was true. And without Keys talking, their hopes of finding Samantha dead or alive were slim. As soon as the Alaska FBI agents heard about Keys' arrest, they made their way to the airport. They wanted to be there for his interrogation. And seeing as he wasn't talking to the local Texas folks, they were hopeful he'd be willing to talk to them considering they came all the way from Alaska. And this belief wouldn't be too far off, although Keyes would play coy until he got back to Alaska. But while in Texas, he would give investigators a run for their money. When the Alaska investigators arrived and sat down with Keyes, they showed him only the ransom note. Keyes was like, listen, there's nothing I can do to help you. Investigator Mickey Dahl was like, listen, if you can't help me, can you at least tell me why our kidnapping victim's boyfriend's ATM card was in your wallet? Keys was like, oh, that? I can explain that. You see, what had happened was, a few weeks ago, I left my truck window open a tiny bit. Then I left, and when I returned and opened my truck, voila, there was some random Ziploc bag sitting in the front seat with a cell phone and an ATM card with the PIN number scratched on its face. Keys was like, listen, I work construction. I legitimately figured someone who owed me money for a job left it there as payment. What a bold face lie. When investigators were like, bro, listen, admit that you took Samantha. Keys said, I don't even know what you're talking about. And with that, frustrations running high, investigators knew Keys would be a hard nut to crack. They started the extradition process and it took two weeks to get Keys to Alaska. By the time he arrived, he had already been assigned a public defender. But despite having a public defender and probably having been advised not to speak to investigators, on March 30th, now two months since Samantha's kidnapping, Keyes made it known he was ready to talk. About what? No one had a clue, but they would be all ears. When Keyes walked into the interrogation room, he said he was ready to talk, but under two conditions. One, no death penalty. And two, he wanted little information released to the media in an effort to protect his young daughter. Now, the media think it would be tough as news had already reported about his arrest and the death penalty request. Well, that would be difficult as well as the investigators didn't even know what he would be confessing to. But without much else to go on, even after they had torn his house, his truck and his shut apart, they needed something. So the investigator said, listen, we will try our best, but we need you to give us something. And with that, Keyes began to tell his story. Keyes left his house on February 1st, just after 7 p.m. His cell phone was off, battery out. And this is something we'll see he does a lot. He went to a local grocery store for a few snacks. Then he made his way to the Home Depot on Tador. Keyes had actually been scouting out that coffee kiosk common grounds on previous occasions. He wanted to get a sense of who was working, customer count, that type of stuff. His intent all along, he told investigators, was to rob the small coffee kiosk. When he found a good parking spot, he sat there for a little bit. 
Then he grabbed his coffee mug, some zip ties, a headlamp, and his gun, a revolver. Keys was also outfitted with an earpiece that was playing the local police scanner. You see, Keys wanted to be prepared in case police were on their way. He then made his way to the coffee grounds. He knew whoever was working there didn't have a car because there was no cars parked near it. As he approached the kiosk, he saw Samantha. He never met her before, didn't even know her name. He made sure to arrive just a few minutes before 8 p.m. because that was their closing time. He handed Samantha his mug and asked for an Americano. Just as Samantha handed him his coffee, that's when he displayed his gun and told her he was robbing her. Keys then instructed Samantha to turn off the lights. Keys knew that Samantha was going to comply because she didn't even make a sound. And he knew she hadn't pressed the panic button yet because if she had, he would have heard about it on his police scanner, which he was actively listening to while he was holding her up. Keys then instructed Samantha to give him the cash. He told her to get on the floor. He zip tied her hands while he was still standing outside. Then after looking around, he jumped through the window and closed it behind him. It was closing time after all. He asked about her transportation and Samantha told him that her dad was coming to pick her up in about an hour. And then she quickly said, oh, he's going to be here any minute. Keys told Samantha about the police scanner in his ear and he told her if he heard anything about this stick up, he would kill her. Then Keys stuffed napkins in Samantha's mouth to keep her from screaming. He then escorted her out of the kiosk and towards his car. Then Keys revealed that as they were walking, he found a camera and picked it up. And that's when Samantha made a run for it. Keys was now upset. So he quickly tackled her and pushed the gun up against her and threatened to kill her if she tried that again. Keys admitted to investigators that it was still early enough that people were trickling around in the parking lot. So he instructed Samantha to act a little drunk, a little hurt and lean on him so that he could hold her close. I guess he didn't want to lose control of her again. Keys said that after he tackled her and they continued walking, they saw various people in the parking lot but Samantha didn't make a move. Keys placed her in the car and then drove off. He took out the napkins from her mouth and Samantha instantly began pleading for her life. Keys tried to calm her by saying that he was only holding her for ransom and that he was going to let her go, but he really had no intention of letting her go ever. Keys described that he was still pretty nervous about Samantha in the car because she might try to escape. And then as they were waiting at a red light, a cop car pulled up next to Samantha. Samantha never took her chance. Keys then drove a petrified Samantha to the Lynn Ari Park, where he prepared a place for Samantha in the back seat of his truck. He then moved her from the front to the back, but was careful to have her sit on a drop cloth. Once he drove off, Keys returned to the spot of the kidnapping because he wanted to have Samantha's cell phone, which he left behind. What in the world? Okay. So Keyes described to the investigators that he returned to the coffee grounds. Before leaving the car to go back to get her phone, he threatened Samantha again. He then went inside the kiosk, grabbed Samantha's phone, and began walking back towards his truck. But as he was walking, he realized he forgot Samantha's keys. He then returned for a third time to get Samantha's keys. OMG, wait a minute. Had authorities watched the surveillance video through to see this or had they stopped when Samantha was taken the first time, which is completely reasonable to a certain extent? You guessed it. It wasn't until after Keyes' confession that authorities corroborated his statement by watching the video full through. And sure enough, there it was in black and white, the perpetrator going in a second and third time. Once he was back at his truck, Keys drove towards his house when Samantha made a request to use the restroom. Wanting to play nice, I guess, however nice you can be after kidnapping someone, Keys stopped into a park and allowed Samantha to pee on some grass while he held her with a rope. After she went to the restroom, Keys told investigators that he smoked a cigar and he let her take a few puffs. After this, Keys wanted to go home to get to his nefarious plans for Samantha. But after he realized he was running low on gas, he had to make another stop. During the interrogation, Keyes told authorities that whenever he got out of the car, he would come out of his car with like a different jacket or sweater because he wanted to throw authorities off if they looked at surveillance video, which honestly is ridiculous to me because he was still driving the same car. But whatever. At some point, either while at the gas station or on the way to his house, 
Keys used Samantha's phone to send messages to all the people who had been calling her, specifically her boyfriend and her boss. When he sent these messages, he made sure to make it seem like Samantha was upset. After the messages were successfully sent, Keys turned off Samantha's phone and took out the battery. Keys then drove to his house. Yup, he drove to the cul-de-sac house in the neighborhood with all the lawyers, the doctors, and the judges, and where his whole ass girlfriend and child lived. Now, if you're on the edge of your seat, just wait, because Samantha's case gets even more terrifying. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. Keys arrived at his house just after midnight. He had to check on his girlfriend and kid, but before he did that, he told Samantha, who was now blindfolded, by the way, not to try anything funny. He then got out and replaced a large wooden rack on the back of his truck. He went inside and checked on his girlfriend, who apparently was still awake. In some version of events, he says she's still awake and other times he says she's asleep. At some point between one and two, Keys went back outside and he moved Samantha, who was probably freezing now. He moved her from the back of his truck to his shed. Now, I need to let you know that prior to kidnapping Samantha, Keys had set up his shed like a no kidding Dexter kill tent. He laid out a big 9 by 12 tarp on the floor. On the floor, there was a foam mat and a fleece sleeping bag. He had two heaters going on and he had a radio in there where he intended to play music very loudly in the event Samantha tried screaming. When he moved Samantha into the shed, he tied a rope around her neck and then both sides of the rope to the wall, like he nailed them into the wall. Then Keys did the oddest thing. But when you learn what it was for, you are going to freak out just like I did. Keys asked Samantha for her address. Then he asked her to describe her car, the car that she shared with her boyfriend, Dwayne. Samantha complied with all these requests. She gave him her address. She also gave him the description of the vehicle, unsure of what Keys was going to do with that. But anyway, at one point, Keys left the shed and left Sam very much alive. Keys then ran inside where his girlfriend and kid were now asleep. He looked up Samantha's address online, probably to confirm that it was a legit address. And then he drove to Samantha's house. It was between 2 and 3 a.m. Keys, afraid of getting caught, parked a little bit away from the house and then walked over to where Samantha lived. There, he found her car parked right in front of her house. He used Samantha's key that he got from the kiosk to get inside the vehicle. And that's where he grabbed Dwayne's ATM card and Samantha's ID. And just as he thought he was free and clear, a guy came outside and looked at him. It was Dwayne. At the time, Keith had no idea it was Samantha's boyfriend, but there was a bit of a stare down, he tells authorities, when all of a sudden Dwayne ran inside. Now Keith hauled booty and hid behind a pile of snow. And then he just sat there for a few minutes. After he didn't hear any sirens coming, he got in his car and beelined home. All the while, Samantha was in the shed and still alive. Y'all, isn't that crazy that Dwayne was actually telling the truth? It did sound so, like, not real. Once Keys was far removed from Samantha's house, he was eager to use the ATM card, but he didn't know the PIN number. 
So this man, no kidding, drove back to his house, went into the shed, asked Samantha for the pin number and then like scrawled it on the ATM card. And then he went back to the ATM machine. But as luck would have it, Dwayne and Samantha didn't have much money in the bank. In fact, they had less than $1 in that account. So the withdrawal was denied. Keys now, I'm not sure if defeated or what, he returned to the shed. It was 3 a.m. His plan for Samantha was about to take shape. It should be noted that before Keys told authorities any further details, he wanted them to stop searching his girlfriend's house. He basically was like, listen, y'all have no reason to believe me, but my girlfriend knows nothing. In fact, no one really knows me. I'm two different people. Only I know me. As investigators listened on, they were shocked. They asked him how long he had been living these two different lives or as two different people. And Keyes responded, 14 years. What in the hell? This killer had been doing this for 14 years. They clearly had a lot to learn. On Sunday, April 1st, investigators met with Keyes again, hopeful that they would learn what Keyes did to Samantha. They already knew that Samantha was dead, but they didn't know how he killed her or where her body was. Keyes picked up where he left off. He said that when he got home after realizing there was no money in the bank, he went inside his house to get a drink of wine. He also grabbed some water for Samantha. When he opened the shed, Samantha didn't even scream. She wanted to know if he spoke to her father. And Keyes, of course, was like, yeah, yeah. He lied. He told her everything was fine. As he was telling her everything was fine, he was removing all of her bindings from her neck and her hands. But then... Just as Samantha probably began to think her nightmare was about to end, she would soon learn it was just beginning. You see, Keyes then tied Samantha up again, but this time he used rope, which is much harder to escape from than zip ties. Then Keyes raped Samantha twice. Afterwards, Samantha pleaded for her life, but Keyes knew. He put on some gloves and strangled Samantha. He then stabbed her once. Without giving it a second thought, Keyes left Samantha in the shed, went inside to take a shower. And then he quickly woke up his daughter because they had to get ready to go to the airport. What? Oh yeah, this is the story, I tell ya. While his daughter got ready, Keyes returned to the shed where he rolled up Samantha's body in a tarp and hid her in the lower cabinets, in the shed still. Then he turned off the space heaters and he left. His intent for turning off the space heaters was so that her body would continue to freeze outside because it was really cold in Alaska at the time. Once Keyes and his daughter were ready to go, he called a cab. He told investigators that he left his house at 5 a.m. and was on his way to the airport. Kimberly stayed behind because she would be meeting up with Keyes and his daughter in a few days, but for now, she would stay put in Alaska. Keyes defiantly told investigators that he was not scared that anyone would find Samantha in his shed because he had been listening in on the police scanner and Samantha's kidnapping hadn't even been reported yet. And he figured there was no evidence left behind and anything like tire marks, well, that would all be gone by the time police even noticed that Samantha was kidnapped. Yikes. This was sad, but true. Remember, this interrogation was taking place in April and Samantha had been kidnapped on February 1st. But investigators thought, what about Kimberly? Was he afraid that she would look in the shed? Keyes said, nope, he wasn't worried about Kimberly at all. She had dared to enter his shed once and was upset to learn he was growing weed. And she never, ever looked at the shed since then. Anyway, Keyes and his daughter flew to the U.S. where they stayed for a few days before Kimberly met up with them and they boarded their cruise. Keyes returned to his house with his daughter on February 18th. His girlfriend was still in the lower 48 and wouldn't be back until February 22nd. So Keyes figured he needed a game plan on how to dispose of Samantha's body. And the thing is, he had to work around his schedule with his daughter because, you know, kids can be nosy. Keyes checked on Samantha's body when he arrived and it had kept while he was on vacation. So in order to not have any oopsie moments with his daughter, Keyes waited an entire three days until his daughter went back to school on the 21st to take any steps to dispose of Samantha's body. And how this man disposed of Samantha's remains and the evidence is incredibly disturbing. Keyes began by cleaning everything and scrubbing the inside of the shed with bleach and a grout sponge. 
he also began to take apart the shed from the inside out. So he took out the lights, disassembled the cabinets, the shelves, that type of stuff. Then he chopped it all up and used it as firewood. He cut up all the clothes and material items, including the sleeping bag, his clothes and shoes, and put it in a trash bag. That took him almost a full day. So he had to take a break to tend to his daughter. But after she went to bed, he started a fire in his living room fireplace. And that is where he burned all the items, the things that Samantha had touched. Then he returned to the shed to continue the disassembly job. But at some point, he hung Samantha's body to thaw her out. And then he had sex with her corpse. Ugh! and this is where, according to Keyes, he said that he lost track of time while he was doing this with a dead body, but was quickly brought back into reality when his daughter came knocking on the shed because it was now morning. Keyes now took a break to prepare his daughter for school. It's unclear what else Keyes did while his daughter was in school, but by the time his daughter was asleep, Keyes had accumulated the following items to prepare for the next step in his grand plan. He now had a Polaroid camera, a foam sled, a typewriter he found at Goodwill, a sewing kit, and 10-pound fishing line. He then went dumpster diving until he found a copy of an outdated newspaper. It was the Anchorage Daily News, and it was dated February 13, 2012. If you're wondering what all of this is for, it was for the picture and the ransom note. Because by the time Keyes took that picture of Samantha, which has been widely circulated and is available on Google, by the way, she had already been dead for three weeks. Keyes describes in vivid detail, almost excitedly, how he prepared Samantha for the picture. He said she was in pretty bad shape. No shit, Sherlock. So he took about three to five hours to cake makeup on her. He wanted it to be a believable picture, especially if he expected to get any real money out of it. Now, he said to ensure that Samantha's eyes stayed open, he used the fishing line and no kidding, sewed this poor girl's eyes open. Keyes described that it took a few tries before he got the picture he wanted and he delivered the note to the park early. It was like 6 a.m. He then drove to a nearby plaza and used Samantha's cell phone to text Dwayne. Then he removed the battery again. He then made his way home and intentionally drove by the park and sure enough, investigators were already there. When authorities asked Keyes why he had gone through such steps to not get caught, but then he used the ATM card, Keyes said he didn't realize he could be tracked with the card. That is something I have a hard time believing, but maybe it's true. Maybe the ATM card is to Israel Keyes what the floppy disk was to Dennis Radar, infamously known as BTK. By the time Kimberly arrived back home, Keyes still had Samantha's body in the shed. And now Kimberly added another complexity. She brought a house guest with her. Well, the house guest didn't stop Keyes. He had to get rid of the body because now that Samantha was thawed, her remains were beginning to smell. And that's when Keyes dismembered Samantha's body. Keyes told investigators that they could find Samantha's body in the Matanuska Lakes State Park. In describing how he disposed of Samantha's body, Keyes stated that it took him three days and three separate trips to the lake for his plan to be accomplished as discreetly as possible. Matanuska was a great fishing location. That's why he chose it. He also made his trips during the day as to not bring any suspicions to himself. Before he could dispose of Samantha's body, he would have to walk out to the frozen lake, make a hole, then build a shelter to enclose the hole. This way, he could dispose of the body parts without anyone being suspicious. Now, as I was reading about how Israel Keys disposed of Samantha's remains, I was shocked. I kept thinking, how in the world did no one know what this man was doing? But it's Alaska and it's ice fishing. There are so many different articles online and pictures where you can see people who are in their little fishing tents and inside there is a hole in the ice where they're just chillaxing ice fishing, drinking, and having a good time. Don't mind me, I'm just a city girl and had no idea about ice fishing until this actual episode. Shame on me. But anyway, on day one, Keyes brought his fishing gear, a chainsaw, a shovel, plywood, and pieces of the ice hut, or what I call the ice tent. After he made the hole, he covered it with plywood, put some snow on top of it, and called it a day. On day two, Keyes took some of Samantha's remains with him to the lake, 
He moved her remains using tote bags. Then he returned to the lake. He finished putting together his ice tent. And then while he was in it, he removed Samantha's head, legs, and arms from the totes. He weighed down the body parts, but didn't wrap them in anything. So it was no kidding, like just a leg with a weight. He then dropped Samantha's remains into the lake. This lake, by the way, is supposedly 80 feet deep, which is why Keyes chose this specific lake. Keyes mentioned that day two didn't take that long. After he was done, he rushed home to make it to a parent-teacher conference at his daughter's elementary school. Now, let me just pause here. Can you imagine that you're a teacher and that you learn that one of your students' parents came to a parent-teacher conference after they had just disposed of a woman in the frozen lake? I mean, listen, let's not forget about the kidnapping, the rape, the murder, the dismemberment. It's just devastating. It would take another two days for Keyes to get rid of Samantha's remains. But he did make it a point to tell investigators that after he was done, he stayed at the lake to actually fish. Of course, authorities did not wait for this full confession to make their way to Matanuska Lake. And when they arrived there, they found the spot. Now, it was a matter of getting a trained team of divers to retrieve Samantha's remains. They called in the FBI dive team. They knew it was a deceased child. Yeah, Samantha was 18, but barely. So they called in the hardened professionals. And of course, one of those hardened professionals was an eight-year army veteran by the name of Charles Bart Bartfeld. Bart, together with Joe Allen, were the chosen two divers who would eventually retrieve Samantha. Using sonar equipment, they were able to determine five distinct locations at the bottom of the lake where they should look. Just as Keyes had described, he dismembered Samantha's body into five pieces. Before jumping in themselves, they sent in a four-propeller remote-operated vehicle with camera. And sure enough, the ROV transmitted images of the body parts just laying on the bottom of the lake. At this point, the team had already set up tents to keep from the media snapping shots. They tried to keep it hush-hush, but the media soon showed up. Samantha's case, as I mentioned earlier, had already made headlines. There was now a SWAT team with a bunch of tents out in the lake. So the media knew something was going on. Once the dive team had visual confirmation, the men jumped in. Once at the bottom, the men described how heavy the body parts were, not only because they're full body parts, but because they were weighted down. And due to the fact that this was actual evidence, they had to keep everything intact, which they describe as the body part and the weight being extremely heavy, even though it's in water. Besides the fact that you never want to remove cut up human remains, the saddest part in this case is that when they recovered Samantha's head, her eyes were wide open. After making the gruesome discovery, James would finally learn that his daughter was deceased and he would never be able to see her body intact. Authorities went back to Keyes to let him know they recovered Samantha's body. Keyes said, quote, I've got lots more stories to tell, end quote. Tell us more, authorities told Keyes. But now Keyes had more requests. Backtracking on his initial request that the death penalty be removed from the table, he now wanted a guaranteed death sentence. But on top of that, he wanted an execution date. Authorities were baffled. What? Investigators knew they couldn't promise that. Death penalty cases take ages. And let's not forget about all the appeals. But listen, they didn't tell Keyes that. Instead, they were like, what can you give us and we'll see what we can do? Keyes then said, quote, I'll give you two bodies, two bodies and a name, end quote. That and more next time on Military Murder. Thank you, True Crime Army, for allowing me the opportunity to be in your ear this week. I hope that you'll take a minute to click that subscribe button, which is free, so you never miss an episode. And don't forget, if you listen to part one, you're going to have to listen to two, because part one is just the beginning. I think you'll be happy to learn that episodes of Military Murder will be coming out more frequently in the near future. Be sure that you're following me on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast. And you can follow me on YouTube at Mama Margot. That's M-A-R-G-O-T. My main resource for today's episode is the book American Predator by Maureen Callahan. 
I also relied heavily on the FBI.gov website, which included extensive write-ups and videos of Keyes' confessions. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions. This month's executive producers are Bob, Falcon 13, Jen, Tina, Alicia, Nicole, and Myrtle. My newest associate producer is Bailey. My newest assistant producers are Chanel, Dan, Alexis, and Capcon. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you the rest of this military murder story next time. I was working on her podcast. I don't want to.